Coming up on a very special episode of Streamageddon, our long national nightmare is finally over. Am I referring to the end of the SAG-AFTRA strike, or the end of Season 2 of Loki? You'll have to listen to find out right now on Streamageddon. Welcome back to a very special episode of Streamageddon. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined by the Mobius to my Loki, Diane Nora. How are you doing, Diane? I'm doing well. I'm overcome with emotions. I just finished watching the Loki season two finale. I cannot wait to discuss. We have not talked about it yet. This is going to be a fresh conversation for both of us. And obviously, we will be spoiling all of Loki in this episode. But don't worry, we have a little bit of news to get to first. So if you're not ready for the uh, extra special Loki spoilers, hang tight. You can uh, bookmark that for later. But first, we have to get to some, uh, let's say, somewhat breaking news. And if you had to guess what the somewhat breaking news might be, you'd probably guess the end of the SAG-AFTRA strike. And I am so happy to say, yes, that is what we're going to start with. Diane, are you as relieved as I am to know that some TV shows will resume being made at some point in the very near future? Chris, I'm thrilled. 118 days is so long. I'm so happy for all of the artists and workers who have been you know, putting their lives on hold, fighting for better treatment. This is amazing. This is really, I, I think, like a, a huge historic moment that uh, I, I don't think we can celebrate it enough. This is fantastic. I feel the same way, even though we don't know all of the details yet. We're recording over the weekend, and the full deal uh, won't be going to the SAG membership until the week. So by the time you listen to this, uh, we might know a bit more, but we do know the the top-level wins that the Guild is uh, broadcasting, because uh, they did have to send this to their uh, leadership board, which did approve it, though not unanimously. Uh, and there's some questions there about if that, that means there's some... Uh, dissent within within the the guild, uh, but it, it passed with eighty six percent of the vote, which is still strong. And I think it would be shocking if the full membership does not approve at this point. Everyone wants to get back to work, and there are some real uh, wins here that we already know about. I'm going to highlight a few, and we have some articles in the show notes if you want to dive deeper. Uh, a big one was uh, a debate over sharing revenue. Essentially, the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA they really wanted the AMPTP, the producer and the streamers to offer some sort of revenue sharing arrangement uh, to make up for the lack of uh, traditional residuals, which is something we've talked a lot about uh, in the streaming world. And uh, the AMPTP said, no, just flat revenue sharing, taking some percentage of our revenue is a non-starter. And what they negotiated instead is similar to but different from what the Writers Guild got, uh, which is essentially a bonus payout for successful shows, for hits. And it, it's not the same structure as the Writers Guild uh, deal, but it is uh, inspired by it, I would say, and has the same general sense of if you are an actor and you are on the next Stranger Things and it blows up, you are going to get a bonus paid out to you based on the success of that show. And then there is another portion of that pile of money that the guild will actually manage and pay out to other actors who are not on the most successful shows. So there's a little bit of something for everyone in that uh, deal, which is not uh, the same as what the WGA got. So I, I thought that was interesting. Um, the other side of it is just a straight increase in in wages, uh, in the minimums, which, you know, as a reminder, actors in particular, most of them work for the, the guild minimums uh, as extras, background actors, as bit parts or guest uh, stars. Um, most of them do not get to negotiate a better rate. And so there are a series of step-ups that were negotiated that are greater than the step-ups that the Writers Guild and Directors Guild got. And uh, I think rightly so, SAG-AFTRA is saying that's a big win. They wanted to get something better than the industry standard, basically, in order to both account for inflation and to just give uh, their working actors, again, who often work for the minimums, a little more, 
which I think was great. And the number uh, essentially adds up to a first year increase of 11.28%. It's a combination of two increases that are coming in two steps. Uh, and there are some more specific uh, raises around uh, relocation costs and things like that. So I, I really think they picked specific areas where they they felt like they needed a lot and they focused on that. Yeah, I think that's great and really encouraging. Obviously, we'll see more numbers as the full uh proposal comes out. I think one interesting thing to me about these sort of streaming residuals is what that will mean for how the success of shows is uh, measured and uh, and um, how the how the quantity of the success of shows is shared. You know, um, does that mean that the streamers now are going to give out hard data uh, to the studios? Are they going to give it out publicly um, about the performance of their shows? Because that has been a real sticking point among all the guilds, uh, or I should say all the unions. Uh, so I, I'm really curious, also just as someone who follows this type of news, to find out, you know, are we going to learn more about which shows are, are being watched? Yeah, and we still don't know the details on that yet, but what we understand so far... Uh, from Duncan Crabtree Ireland in particular, who was the lead negotiator for SAG-AFTRA, is, uh, is that it will be somewhat similar to the Writers Guild situation, which is that the Guild will get certain metrics and certain levels of transparency, not necessarily the public. And uh, what we're waiting to see, and what I'm curious to see, is how much of that information will trickle out. Uh, will we get to know? We we will know what is deemed a hit because those people will get the bonuses. So somehow that news will travel. But will we also learn uh, relative performance? Will we just know these 10 shows were deemed hits this year and so they got the bonuses? Or will we get to know which ones uh, were more of a hit than others? We don't know yet. Right. And but SAG-AFTRA has a, a large membership. Will that information go to the full membership or just the leadership who are, you know, in charge of doling that out? It's just very curious. I'm very curious to hear more of the details about that. And as far as the uh, raises go in terms of like actual percentage increases, I think that also speaks to changes in the industry and in particular changes for the lives of working actors over the past few years as we've moved from sort of traditional TV models toward streaming models. Uh, you know, people aren't on one show per year and making it, you know. Uh, a lot of actors have to be on like, you know, two, three shows a year to be making a living wage. And part of that is to do with uh, changes in the cost of living, but also just uh, the number of episodes per season and uh, the the structure of residuals and other uh, bonuses related to how revenue shared. So I, I think that it's it's a really interesting point to see not just where the industry is headed, but um, how leadership feels about where we are in this moment right now. Yeah. And and there are still a lot of questions about uh, what exactly they won on some of the biggest issues. I'm going to say maybe the biggest surprise issue, which is AI. We, right. Uh, we don't really know. And by the time you listen to this, perhaps we do. But uh, it is interesting to see them say we won a big victory on AI, which is an existential threat to a lot of working actors who do make that bare minimum uh, salary, that, that minimum that just got raised. Well, it's great the minimum was raised, but if you replace 90% of those actors with digital replicas, it doesn't matter that, that they got a raise. I truly remember a time in my life where I was working at a job and we got a surprisingly great annual raise and everyone was really excited and then they slashed hours. Mm. And it was like, oh, oh, that was the catch. And so, you know, I think to, uh, again, to Duncan Crabtree Ireland and Fran Drescher's credit, uh, they very quickly realized this year what a serious threat AI was to their membership, which if you just go back 12 months and, and you told 
you, you or me, that the big sticking point, perhaps the biggest sticking point of this strike would be artificial intelligence replacing working actors, I would have done a spit take. I, I, I would have been like, excuse me, you're describing the plot of a sci-fi series. Is this Black Mirror season seven? Which ironically, yes, it sort of is. Especially with regards to things like background actors, you know, and not like I could have predicted it perhaps being an issue the way that we saw it was happening in the music industry with like uh, deceased artists, you know, and uh, their estates having to deal with uh, the that kind of performance. But I, I'm, I'm very curious as to what the details on that will be. Uh, and I do think that Regardless, people are just so eager to get back to work, including people who aren't in the unions, you know, um, crew members and other folks really just want to get back to work. So I think that this will pass. But I do think that there we may discover more of um, some less than satisfying aspects of this deal. I hope I'm wrong, but that's what I expect. Yeah, I, I have to say I have the same um, kind of cautious optimism there. Uh, it, it is really important that they that the guild feels they really made a victory or an advancement in the AI kind of, you know, uh, you owning your own image and likeness. That is very important. And they've said a big win here is that uh, there will be consent and compensation. And that, as a top level, sounds very good. That sounds like what is needed. Uh, I will say, again, we don't know a lot of the details yet, and it's clear the AMPTP fought hard against what the the guild was asking for here, because the AMPTP wants that flexibility. They want to be able to do more with AI, and they don't want to feel constrained. And there is some fairness to that position. They don't want to feel like their hands are tied with this potentially revolutionary technology, but... I, I am very sympathetic to the actors on this side, as well as the writers who, who have, you know, their work is their body or their mind. And if you take that from them, they don't have anything. In a year where so much work has stopped, uh, this issue and the amount that it was a sticking point for the studios for me is perhaps the most ominous and dark thing that I've seen. Uh, it makes me very concerned for the future of the industry. I don't know if that's just me catastrophizing based on a lack of information. We'll see. We'll see what it is. We, we will see, and we will talk about it here on Streamageddon. In the meantime, that is what we know about the strike. And again, I'll have some fresh links in the show notes. So if you want to read more as we learn more uh, over the next couple of days, I will include that for you, dear listener. But first, before we move on to our Loki spoilers, we have to issue what I guess is a sort of correction about Hulu. Because as you know, in our last episode, we talked about Disney announcing the inevitable, that they are finishing their acquisition of Hulu sometime in 2024 for some amount of money that will be somehow north of $9 billion at this point. Uh, that's That we all know, and again, not really surprising. But Diane and I, we, we had some opinions, some thoughts about how aggressive Disney would integrate Hulu into Disney+. And... Uh, within mere hours, perhaps, of us issuing our definitive stance that there is no rush, that Disney is very protective of their brand in the U.S., and they are not going to tip, or rather that they will tiptoe into the, the new Hulu-Disney combo platter universe. Uh, no, no, Disney just came out and said, yeah, in December, we're going to launch an app that includes them both. Have a nice day. I want to see, you know, like... Donald Duck on Fargo. <laughs> what yeah. is happening? I this I'm I stand by my my guess, which was completely wrong, just like factually wrong. I guessed wrong, but I still I don't get why why they're doing this. I mean, maybe they're just saying numbers wise, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, uh, we're going to make the most money this way. But I'm confused about the Disney brand and Hulu uh, coexisting in this way. I mean, I can see the arguments 
for it very clearly. They already do this with Star in, in other markets, which we've discussed. And mm-hmm. if you look at Max, the Max app, it is much broader and bigger than HBO Max that came before it because they just shoved Discovery Plus into the Max app. And yes, you can still get Discovery by itself, and that standalone Discovery app still exists for less money if you are just a Discovery stan. But I think, you know, to David Zaslov's credit, and we will occasionally give him credit, but again, only occasionally, uh, he knows that you will get more discovery, not, uh, I mean, discovery, the act of discovering something. If you take the discovery content and you put it in the same app as the HBO Max content, because then you have the discovery viewers who might stumble onto a Max original. And you have the HBO viewers who might stumble into watching House Hunters for eight straight hours. You never know. That would be quite a, a stumble from grace. And, and perhaps that's what will happen. I mean, I, it seems like what we're moving toward is just uh, more centralization and a point where there are a few massive streamer sources just sort of winnowing down the market. And um, I don't love that as a consumer of this media. I don't love that as someone interested in creating content. Um, for this medium either, but that does seem to be the trend. Yes, it's definitely the trend. And I, you know, I'm not sure what the right answer should be for consumers, because on the one hand, I had to explain to my parents how to access CNN Max, which is a tab within the Max app, which already you have to say, no, I mean, not HBO the channel, I mean HBO Max, which we now just call Max. And inside Max, you're going to find a news tab that really means CNN. And then when you get there, you're watching CNN. That's confusing. However, it's also a lot of friction to say it's a different tile on your screen. And no, 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 it's not in that tile. Even though it's included with your Mac subscription, you have to go to the other app. You have to go back to the home screen. You have to navigate. Oh, you have to sign in again. Like, I I see the friction on both sides. And so I do think, you know, sure, combine them. Offer a bundled app so that hopefully it's more integrated. Hopefully it's smoother for the customer hopefully Hmm? it's not a bundle anymore it's a bundled app i mean is what they're working toward right and and there are many questions on what that'll look like and i can't wait to see it myself i I do want to admit that in uh reading about the announcement of the upcoming uh, beta app that will combine these both we don't really know again what it exactly will look like yet uh, I did find out that uh, I was reminded, let's say, that Disney teased this in May of this year. And uh, that is just hilarious to me because in May of this year, they were saying, yeah, we're going to stick Hulu and Disney in the same app together at some point. And then it took until October of this year for them to say, right, that means we're going to finish buying Hulu. Like, of course you're going to finish buying Hulu. In the spring, you were already planning. There's no way they could have launched this combined app so quickly if they weren't already working on it months and months ago. But there's so many moving parts here, and it's so complicated and so unnecessarily confusing from a, a consumer standpoint that it is easy to miss these details. And so I am I am willing to take some correction there in forgetting that we already knew this was going to happen, as well as saying to the people who were surprised at the announcement that Disney is finishing their acquisition of Hulu, guys, they, they said it in May. <laughs> they, they've been saying it this whole time. They have been. I mean, that part of it seems less surprising to me. I think it's more about the the speed at which it's all happening. Yeah, and it, it does, you know, go to show that in the background, they, they knew this was inevitable. They were not planning on ditching Hulu. They have been tasking people with doing the hard work of making an app that combines them both that will hopefully launch better than the Max app launched. Because if you remember, the launch of the Max app was messy. Indeed. Yeah, that that didn't go smoothly, to say the least. But hey, Max is my go-to app for many things now. As I've said before, loving my CNN Max. I can watch Jake Tapper every day at four. 
It does seem like more of a gamble to be doing this with Hulu, one of the few profitable streaming apps. Yeah, that's the risk for sure. And and also I have questions about what does this mean for people who are subscribers to Hulu with live TV? Because mm. I don't see how they'll be able to cram that into the Disney Plus app. And so if you're a Hulu with live TV subscriber, even if you have the bundle, are you still going to be jumping around? And and is there an argument to say, well, if you're going to do this, why don't you also stick all the Disney Plus content in the Hulu app for the Hulu with live TV subscribers? We mentioned last week that Echo is coming in January to both Hulu and Disney Plus on day one. Is that actually an experiment in seeing, you know what, is are they just two different storefronts for the same content? And which one you choose depends on whether you are a Disney first subscriber who then gets the Hulu bundle, or are you a Hulu first subscriber for live TV reasons, and then the Disney stuff comes along for the ride? I don't have Hulu with live TV yet, though I am an advocate for it. Uh, I, But I'm definitely more of a Hulu user than a Disney Plus user. At this point, I basically have Disney Plus for Loki. So, so what are you going to do now? I guess it depends on your feelings about the finale of Loki and what better time than right now to give you, dear listener, your final spoiler alert because we are ready to talk all about the season two finale of Loki. And so I guess, Diane, I'm going to I'm going to phrase this question very specifically to you. Um, are you going to cancel your Disney Plus now that Loki's over? I, don't think I will. I think I'll keep it. I um, feel that uh, this is going to be a bit of a big statement and maybe I'll walk it back later you might convince me i'm wrong about this i think that uh loki is the best marvel content since avengers uh endgame that that actually is a non-controversial take i have been reading reviews i have been looking at the comments never look at the comments i am doing it for you dear listener and i will say I think the majority opinion about the loki finale is that it is the best marvel content since endgame and on the one hand, I think that's kind of a low bar because there's been a lot sure. of Marvel content since Endgame. And so the fact that you're the best of that is both impressive, but also we all know how not uh, successful some of that content has been on the compared to Endgame. It, when you're dealing with the Marvel budget and the Marvel standards, it is not hard to say, hey, this is the best one since Endgame because no one has said that about any of the shows since Endgame except maybe WandaVision when it started, and and season one of Loki, which was pretty successful. Uh, I think it's important to say that you and many people, and I, I would perhaps agree, uh, think that season two of Loki fulfilled that promise for the most part. Because certainly if season two had stumbled, uh, well, then we wouldn't say that it's the most successful thing since Endgame. And I, I'm not sure I fully agree that it's the most successful thing since Endgame, but I am willing to admit that is the popular opinion. Well, I would say that I I think that this the back half of season two of Loki really improved upon the front half. Um, I still have big questions about the series mostly around character development and motivation, mostly around the character of Sylvie, but she's so important to Loki's character development that I don't think I can isolate it as just being a Sylvie problem. But even after watching the finale, I'm like, I kind of wish that this character had been killed off because they didn't seem to know what to do with her all season long. Yeah, and honestly, I would say... I find it to be a problem with how they wrote Loki's character and his motivation, which I found mm -hmm. very flip-floppy many times throughout this season and even in the finale itself. But I am willing to forgive a lot of that because, one, Tom Hiddleston is a, an excellent, not just a great actor, not just an amazing actor. He is perhaps a, a generational talent in his ability to make me go with it. And mm -hmm. not make me stop and go, I don't know, I don't believe you anymore, or I don't get it. Like, he really helps smooth over a lot of reservations I have about 
not the plotting so much as what is Loki's deal? Why am I rooting for him? Why does he need to have an entire show to tell his story? Because they, the writing doesn't always make that clear to me, but Tom Hiddleston always makes it clear to me. I agree. I think he's an artist that imbues work with a lot of integrity. Uh, and I think that Owen Wilson is too. And so when you put them next to each other, the work is just elevated. It's just much better than it is on its surface but i it's not just the writing and the actors for me because i was wondering is that what it is is this just my favorite cast of marvel characters i think also the the score is really good natalie holds music absolutely stellar Still, it's really good. Um, and the visuals are a lot better than any of the Marvel movies I've seen of late or the other series that I've seen. I just think it's um, creative and it's got a sense of play to it, but it doesn't feel hokey in the way that, like, say, we were discussing Ant-Man Quantumania earlier. It, it, that just looks um, cheap. Yeah, I think the... the uh creative team behind Loki made a very aggressive play to have physical sets that weren't just, now there's some physical stuff and then we'll green screen the rest. We'll green screen the sky. We'll green screen the background. No, they have fully built rooms with ceilings. They have, they built an entire retro McDonald's in the outskirts of London. The, the McDonald's that Sylvie goes back to was apparently an abandoned Indian restaurant two hours outside of London that they transformed into the most perfect replica McDonald's you have ever seen. And perhaps some of that was because McDonald's was paying for some of it. But either mm-hmm. way, it imbued those scenes with a sense of gravity and realness that is Absolutely a must-have for a show that deals in crazy time travel multiverse nonsense shenanigans. Because uh, comparing again to Ant-Man Quantumania, which deals with, you know, time travel sort of multiverse totally and like, you know, the quantum realm. All of that is shenanigans, confusing. You can make up whatever. There's a guy with a laser for a head. William Jackson Harper is there for some reason. Bill Murray is there for some reason. And all of that feels completely ungrounded and out in the the kind of ether because they're all just standing on green screen sets the whole time. There's nothing to anchor it to make it feel like all these people are really real. Yeah. And I think um, with a with a movie like that one, there is an attempt at humor with the outlandishness of everything happening. Um, but the humor doesn't have any wit or grounding. And so it just kind of feels like the joke is on you, the viewer, for giving your money, giving your time to this. Like it feels like they're like, oh, we know that you're going to watch no matter what. So lol, here's Bill Murray. It's like, insulting a little bit it it makes it it it, yeah it's it feels a little degrading i mean i know that's an extreme reaction but it just does it leaves you with an ick whereas this i felt like it wasn't perfect it is flawed but i felt like it was worth my time yes i i was about to say the simplest way i can differentiate these ant-man quantum mania felt like it wasted my time and loki did not. Even with my reservations about the first half of this second season, even with some more reservations I'm going to get to, I want to be clear, Loki did not waste my time. I really enjoyed the time I spent with Loki. Agreed. And in fact, one of my biggest complaints about Loki is I wish they'd taken more time to tell this story. 100% agreed. We have said that before, and I will say it again. The The biggest complaint, knock I have against this, is they had too many characters and ideas that they wanted to explore, and not enough episodes, not enough time to do it justice. And if they could go back in time, <laughs> I think the the note I would give them and that maybe they would give themselves is we either need to ask Disney for like two more episodes a season, four more episodes a season if I'm making my wish list, or maybe we need to prune haha, uh, one or two of these characters because we're not giving them justice. We're not giving them enough to be fully fleshed out. 
And like Casey, I'm going to pick an example. I love Eugene Cordero. And Casey was such a fun character. And and a highlight for me was getting to see him in episode five uh, back in his original timeline as a, a, a bank robber breaking out of Alcatraz. Loved that. However, they really didn't give us enough time to meet or know Casey beyond him being a bit of comic relief who got elevated to a slightly higher role. And by the last episode of the season, Casey is basically in gone. He's physically there in some of the scenes, but they don't have time for it. And and I, I wish they could have had time for it. And as a viewer, I think when you have that many characters who are hooking your interest and are being treated like main characters, if you're not careful and you don't give them a balance of attention, it starts to distract from who I should be paying attention to. I think you might feel that way about Sylvie. I do. And the other thing that I would say about a character like Casey is not just that the audience needs more time with them. Your protagonist needs more time with him because it's not I I, I saw him doing some cute antics from the pilot, but like. Did he have any real emotional connection with Loki? Did Sylvie? They spent like an episode together and then we're sort of supposed to believe that they're like some deep love that he can't betray. It felt um, rushed and, and just unearned. Yeah, and, and unearned is a, a word I would use around some of the big emotional beats in the finale. But it, again, that is relative to my dream scenario where we get 10 episodes a season where, you know, season one ends with the the loom exploding and us uh, going on a cliffhanger of is the whole world over. I, I think there was I think we needed more space for this. And I think I would feel better about the front half of season two if it had been part of season one. Those episodes that were kind of time travel adventure of the week. Let's go to 1893. Really beautiful, cool ideas. But by the time we were in season two, knowing that season two would probably be the last season, even before the final moments of season two made that pretty clear, uh, it, it felt like those were uh, distractions and that it it made me lose some of the what are we working towards? Where is the momentum taking us? I know we're running out of time. Why are we spending so much of that time at the World's Fair? And why are we spending so much of that time with these Kang variants? Uh, you know, Victor Timely, Hugh Who Remains, all the different Kangs, who are not interesting, are like very gimmicky. I felt that they did not deserve that much of our time, and it didn't make him a more compelling villain for me. I, I, I could agree with a lot of that. I did wind up liking He Who Remains the most of all the Kangs we've met. Of Victor Timely, of Kang from Ant-Man, the, the one who I found most interesting, and I still felt that way in the season finale, was He Who Remains, because he's the one who is a little weird and unhinged, and that performance is definitely full of a lot of choices, but actually makes a lot of sense to me, because he's the only one left. He's alone, and he's been alone for so long, and he he alone feels the existential uh, dread of what comes after him. And there was something uh, mo more fun, maybe not more villainous or more um, exciting from a, a, like, here's your arch enemy perspective, but something more human and fun about that performance and that version of Kang, who we get a full wrap-up on at the end of this. And I feel like, yeah, I am satisfied with where that ended for that villain, and I don't really want to revisit that villain. I think that was the best ending we could have for that villain. I agree with that. I hope we don't get more. Um, I... For other reasons, too, I should admit, like, the whole Jonathan Majors thing is absolutely coloring my interpretation of it. I haven't been able to separate it, so I'm just going to, like, put that out there. But also, I found that the He Who Remains character, one of his major flaws is arrogance. In a way, that's fitting for Loki because Loki's, you know, incredibly arrogant. But it also made their scenes, particularly their scenes when it was Loki and Sylvie and he who remains all fighting each other, just like three people who obviously were like eating up the scenes and felt very same note 
And I would have loved to have some different type of character variation uh, just to make the drama and the dialogue a little spicier. I just felt that they were a little flat. And I think part of it is because they're all, you know, boastful in a kind of samey way. That's an interesting take. I, I I both agree a bit and I and I uh, disagree a bit, but I, I think that's that's uh, I think there's some kernel of truth to that for sure. What I uh, hmm, I, I feel like I want to give like a, a s- short walkthrough of the finale to kind of hit where I where I still feel like like I have some reservations about how they structured the whole show and in particular the second season. So the the finale begins with Loki doing what I found to be one of the more fun montages the show could have pulled off of repeating the same events over and over and over again, because now he's mastered the ability to time slip back to any point in his own history, his own life. And so he repeatedly goes back to try to prevent the temporal loom from exploding and trying to prevent Victor Timely from being obliterated. And that gets very funny, especially as we cut to centuries later, he's learned all of like metaphysics and and how to make his own loom gadgets. Great. Then that doesn't work, essentially. Even when he successfully expands the loom, the loom blows up anyway. And so he starts going further back and further back. And that's where we get to him repeating the season finale scenes from season one with Loki, Sylvie, and He Who Remains at the end of time. And what I struggled with a little bit in that section was it reminded me that there are some really confusing hairpin turns Loki's motivation takes that don't always make sense to me, such as, okay, at the beginning of the episode, Loki is trying to expand the loom so that all of the timelines and all of the multiverses can live, which has been a primary motivation for most of the season. They have equated pruning those timelines, those variant timelines, with kind of genocide, with mass death Mm. and destruction. And so at this point, I as a viewer am really invested in preserving all of those timelines because they've told me those are the stakes. And then when he starts redoing the season one finale fight with He Who Remains, he reverts to a plan from the end of season one, which is maybe we don't kill He Who Remains because one timeline's better than no timelines, which I can see the logic and I understand it, but that is a fast turn of motivation. It's a 180. And now he's trying to convince Sylvie, no, 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 we have to let him live because otherwise there's nothing, which doesn't work on Sylvie as an argument. And I found it a bit repetitive watching him fail to make that over and over again because at that point I, I felt like, well, of course she's not going to agree to that. And then they built up, maybe he'll kill her, because that would be the only way to solve this conundrum. But then if he kills her, he's also going to kill all of the multiversal timelines in order to save just the sacred timeline, which goes against what we've been working for this whole season. And so I struggled with those motivational shifts not being clear and feeling like they were just plot points to put together these people in this arrangement again. I agree very much. And I felt like it was happening because of some like pressure to include a twist of some sort, like like some sort of structural thing, like gimmicky. Why wouldn't it be great if, oh, no, the thing we are working toward, this won't work. We have to shift to this. And I, I get why those kind of plot shifts when they are organic and interesting and really work well are so satisfying for viewers but they just didn't quite land here for me and so yes seeing the the actors have to cover that with great performances which i think they basically did was was good but it still left some of the character motivations a little muddled if you really gave them that consideration yeah and they they did wind up answering one of my biggest questions and sort of like sticking points of this season there, which is why the loom and why is this the MacGuffin of the season? The loom has struck me all season as a really dumb MacGuffin. A MacGuffin uh, being, how would you describe a MacGuffin to somebody who's never used the term before? Kind of a thing that everyone's focused on that's not really the important thing. 
Yeah, it's a um sort of if you've seen the Maltese Falcon, it's like it's like a um plot device or an object that is given um a bunch of weight and is something that people are working toward but that ends up being um sometimes literally often metaphorically hollow. Yes, thank you. And I felt that way about the loom throughout the entirety of the season. Uh, because ultimately, I don't care about the loom. We talked last week about how Marvel and a lot of superhero things, but especially Marvel right now, has stumbled into this trap of ever-escalating stakes, where once you save the country, you have to save the world. And once you save the world, you have to save the galaxy. And once you save the galaxy, you have to save the universe. And now we have to save the multiverse. And the loom was this MacGuffin to save the multiverse. But the show is about Loki and the show is about saving Loki, essentially. Loki saving himself, Loki redeeming himself, and becoming uh, the glorious purpose that he seeks. And I found a lot of the loom-based multiverse stuff really distracted from uh, Loki's motivations and the, the story of Loki and the friends he made along the way that ultimately was the point of the show. And so the twist that they reveal with He Who Remains is that the reason the loom still blows up even once they expand the rings to fit the threads is because the loom was always designed to be a fail-safe. That was their word, a fail-safe. That if the loom is... Me, you know, messed with, if the loom is tampered with, it will explode and destroy everything except the sacred timeline. And that that's how He Who Remains designed it. And that means there is no way to fix the loom. The loom itself is the problem. Which I, I get. Like, logically, I understood, and I went, thank you, in a way, for finally explaining why the loom matters and why it blowing up matters and why they don't just go turn it off why they have to keep it running there, there there were so many like just structural questions not plot so much as just like i don't understand why anyone cares and why we don't just move on from this or replace it with something else that is more interesting or more you know human than the giant loom gizmo but also, once it explodes and they're left with only the sacred timeline, according to He Who Remains, wouldn't it all just start to branch into a new series of multiverses and variants again? And now the TVA would be gone and nothing would stop it? Like, logically, I also didn't understand how that motivation really worked. I, again, I got it. But it also just posed more pointless questions that made me, again, feel like the loom was a mistake from a story level. I agree with that completely. I uh, When we were revisiting last week, I, I revisited the pilot of Loki, and I remembered all the stuff about um, Loki's mom that they had brought up and losing that essential connection and how it seems like Loki is looking to recreate family. And I think successfully over these two seasons, he has had this found family story that like happens within the Avengers for some of the other characters, but doesn't really happen for Loki in the Avengers. So I found that part of the storytelling really satisfying that like where we end up with, um, you know, Hunter B-15 and Mobius and Casey uh, and Sylvie, I guess, uh, is that Loki has his, his found family. Um and so that for me, I think as like basic storytelling works and a lot of the uh, distracting things that happened along the way um, were sometimes really fun adventures to see this character go on and were sometimes just distracting. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, think... I, I everything with the loom for me was basically like a, a, a distraction, which the problem with that is that the time is so limited with these characters. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think I'd be more forgiving of the entire Loom situation if we had more time with everyone so that the Loom was looming in the background. Sorry for the pun. <laughs> uh, but that the focus was the relationships and the stakes of losing those relationships 
And I do think earlier in the season, we struggled a bit with, you know, what's the deal with Loki and Sylvie and the will they, won't they of the first few episodes before they kind of reunited and teamed up again. And I, I again, I think part of that was we were there were too many other unnecessary distractions flying around. We got to get Victor Timely and we got the loom and uh, Orosboros says we got to do this. And it's like, OK, but I'm a little lost from a character perspective now. And if we'd had more time, I think I could have followed that more smooth. I think I just would have had more space for everything. Some of the minor or I shouldn't say minor. Some of the non-Loki characters had, I think, more interesting storylines in that they were simpler. Someone like Mobius, who just, you know, like, has a shop with the Sidus, has the kids. We find out that he, at the beginning of the series, was really being punished. This is, like, information that we've been retconned because of his inability to prune an eight-year-old. Um, whereas Renslayer was able to to do so um, and got promoted and Mobius is like fighting to keep his job at the beginning of the series because of this event. Um, that to me, his story arc was like very satisfying and complete. I I felt and, and it was a beautiful performance. Wow. Owen Wilson put him in everything. Uh, give him his own work to make. <laughs> uh like I, it just made me wish that um, Loki and Sylvie were given that sort of simple story beat uh, arcs to yeah. to satisfy, um, because the convoluted nature of their stories denied us that like beautiful simplicity. Yeah, it, it reminds me of some writing advice I got from a professor eons ago. Uh, that I think is always true, which is simplicity breeds complexity. You make a really interesting, complex story by layering simple stories on top of each other. And the stories that worked so clearly and so well for these characters were the simple ones that layered nicely. And I feel like especially Loki and Sylvie's story started at a place of complexity especially in season two, where in season one, their story was a little simpler that got more complicated as they added more layers on top of it. And I do think at the end, I got to a place where I understood Loki's sacrifice and I understood that Sylvie was sort of a necessary uh, foil to push him to that realization that to save his found family, he must ascend to this you know, multiversal throne, and ironically, get the glorious purpose he's always sought, get the throne that evil Loki from the movies always wanted, but it's not the throne he thought he would get, and he doesn't get to lord it over people and have them know that he is their god. He has to be the silent god of all, and only a handful of his closest, most personal friends, Mobius, B-15, Casey, Sylvie, OB, they know that he made this sacrifice and they know that he is at, at the, the literally the throne of all existence holding all the multiverses together, but no one else does. And he doesn't get the ego out of that. He had to let go of that. And I get that Sylvie got him there, but the journey this season to that was not clean. But Loki's foil is he who remains. Well, that's some of the confusion, Loki, right? I think. It's too, too many much. foils. Too many foils yeah. in too few episodes. Again, with more time, I can I can appreciate all these different foils and how they each add a different element or challenge him in a different way. But they had to shove too much of that together. Yeah, and the three of them in scenes together will just woof. Um, yeah. The, the strongest scenes of this series in general, looking back on it, are all like excellent two-handers. Loki and Sylvie at the bar in Oklahoma. Uh, Loki and Mobius eating pie at the Automat. All mm -hmm. of those are just excellent, well-written, well-acted, well-directed. That is where the series was its best. I, I liked some of the Mobius and Renslayer moments. Oh, yeah. And I kind of wouldn't have minded getting another beat with them. How did you feel about Renslayer's... Uh, finale. Renslayer just appearing at, at the, in ancient the, Egypt? 
Well, Renslayer, no, well, no, see, I actually think they really whiffed on that moment with Renslayer at the end, because where is she really? She's at that purgatory at the end of time where people go when they get pruned, and she looks up at the glowing purple cloud in the sky, and you're supposed to remember, oh, that's the purple cloud monster from season one, episode five, and she's at that place that uh, that Loki went in that episode, like, two years ago now, when he got pruned. And honestly, I was like, oh, gosh, guys, you should not have included that moment with Renslayer at the end at all, because it is totally devoid of context if you do not remember Elioth, the the monster cloud. And I didn't need to know that's where she wound up. I guess it's there to show us, one, she finally has to go to the place all those people she pruned went to, and she has to face down what they faced down. And two, maybe it leaves open the possibility she comes back. I, I saw one person in the comments on a, a review suggest maybe Renslayer is the new Kang. Maybe they recast Jonathan Majors with her as a <gasps> female it, Kang variant. And honestly, I was like, actually, if, if that is your choice, I kind of love it because I want to spend more time with her. I found her to be underutilized in season two. And I wanted and a better actor. And she is really good. Uh, but that that exact scene where we left her at the end really like hit me in a weird way. Where I was like, "Oh, guys, you did not explain enough. There was too much homework I had to do to our our conversation last week. There was too much homework <laughs> I had to do in this finale. And thankfully, I really like Loki and was happy to rewatch the pilot and happy to rewatch the season one finale." But if I had not rewatched those episodes, I would not have enjoyed this finale as much. I would have ended it thinking, I feel like they were doing some big callbacks there. And I think I remember what they were calling back to. But it was a long time ago when that first season aired. And if you did not refresh yourself, I, I think you were missing some of it. You might think this is like the the worst thing I'm ever going to say. But why not Loki season three? I think they should. I, I continue to say they should just be making TV shows and they can have yeah. loose tie-ins to the movies and the broader cinematic universe, but they should be treating the TV shows like TV shows. And it is disappointing that this one ended with what feels like a pretty definitive, we will not be seeing Loki again anytime soon. Goodbye. But with the multiverse, it seems like you can always reintroduce people. If we're bringing back Iron Man into the MCU, are you telling me we can't bring Loki back onto Loki? I feel like we could. I would be happy to have more Loki. I would be happy to have more time with any of these characters. If they wanted to pitch me on a season three of Loki that's just about the TVA post-Loki or a spinoff about the TVA... I would be there for it because, as we've both said, we love those characters and are happy to spend more time with them. It would be missing something without Tom Hiddleston and Loki, but there mm. is more than enough there to continue in that world. I, a Miss Minutes Mobius spinoff. Oh, yes. With B-15, Casey, OB, Renslayer. That, there's so many good people there. Again... Not to re repeat ourselves too much, there are too many good people there for the 12 episodes that they had to tell their stories. So give us more. I agree. And I'm really excited about that, that thing that you suggested, that it could be Renslayer I as know. the new king. Oh, make it happen. That I read that in comments and I was like, mm, yes, please, please. I'd be into it. And on many, many, many different levels, I would be into it. But we will have to wait and see uh, what Disney decides to do with uh, this complicated business situation they find themselves in, as well as the kind of complicated artistic situation, which is, you know, this climate of, let's say, franchise fatigue. Uh, we're not going to get into the Marvels in theaters currently, but it is opening. Uh, its opening weekend is a disappointment. Uh, by all measures, Disney is not going to be happy with the numbers on the Marvels, even though some of the reviews are pretty positive. And I honestly am looking forward to seeing it because I, one, love Kamala Khan from Ms. Marvel. I, I might even rank that as one of my favorite of the Marvel uh, TV shows. Uh, and also, I've heard it's only like 92 minutes, which sounds fantastic. Uh, yeah, but that sounds fun. 
but it is not uh, becoming a critical success in the box office. And so I think, once again, we're going to hear some headlines about Disney asking a lot of hard questions about the future of the franchise, and in particular, the big Avengers movies slated for the, not next year, but 2025, 2026. I hope that they are asking themselves some serious questions. I hope that when they're looking to the answers for why the Marvels didn't have the opening weekend they wanted, they look at the rest of what came before it in the Marvel world, the the previous uh, Marvel movies, and also everything that's happened in terms of actors not being able to do promotional work with the strike, and that their response is not um, people don't want series focused on or they don't want series and films focused on women um which i i imagine might be a a part of the response that they're hearing yeah i don't i don't like that but i hope they can see through it to the bigger uh, the bigger questions, the bigger issues, too much tie-in is definitely a critique that can be leveled at the Marvels, that uh, people are not jazzed for a movie that immediately says, if you have not watched WandaVision and Ms. Marvel and the previous Captain Marvel movie, you probably aren't going to understand some of this. And that is a big barrier to entry. It is. It really is. Who has the time? And Loki, to bring it back to Loki at the end, to its credit, even though the pilot of Loki has flashbacks to an Avengers movie, flashbacks to various Thor adventures, the show did a very good job of trying to make it accessible, that you are meeting Loki as he meets the TVA, and that this is sort of a new Loki, even though it is literally a Loki who just time-traveled from another movie minutes ago, so to speak. And through the first season in particular, I thought that Loki as a show did a good job of not being too hard to penetrate if you were not fully up-to-date on your Marvel. And that is a lesson they should take home, I think. I agree with that. I think Loki is a series that you you could watch without having seen other Marvel things and could bring you into the Marvel universe, which is what I think they want. Whereas a lot of the other Marvel content I see, I feel like if I don't feel that I've done my requisite homework, it's pushing me out of the Marvel universe. So, uh, yeah, I think in that sense, it's a success. Yeah, I um, had watched most of this season of Loki before actually seeing Ant-Man Quantumania. And I will say, seeing Kang and his variants and then the post-credits Quantumania scene, which is literally a scene from an episode of season two of Loki, uh, the one where they meet Victor Timely in the past, none of that crossover stuff with Kang in the Quantumania movie, none of it changed how I felt about Loki. Loki lived and died, succeeded and failed on its own two feet to me with just a cursory knowledge of who he is and who he was in the broader Marvel universe needed. I did not need or benefit from the additional aggressive crossovers around Kang in particular. I didn't need it, didn't add much, and I think there's a lesson to take away there, which is that only risks turning people away by making it feel too much work. And uh, there's a right amount of like crossover synergy, and Marvel has not found it. Do you think that having seen all of Loki makes you more inclined to watch upcoming Marvel content? Honestly, I I feel kind of neutral on that. It doesn't really change much of my feelings at all. Like, I'm I'm really interested in watching Echo because Echo is going to stand alone on its own a bit more, so they say. And because I liked meeting that character in Hawkeye. That really have Hmm. my opinions on Loki have not changed that attitude at all. I do think that I'm going to watch Hawkeye over the holidays. Yeah. And as, I, a little, as a little treat for myself. Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking that too. There, there are some uh, nice things to be said about, uh, you know, we've complained about these series needing to be longer. But also there is something nice to be said about the ones that do tell a contained one and done story like Hawkeye did uh, are, are quite good when they have that container around them. Hawkeye did not tried too hard to set up a bunch of other stuff. And I really appreciated that. It was much more a standalone miniseries. Uh, 
but that hasn't been true for a lot of these shows. A lot of them have tried really hard to integrate or set up too many other things, or they've stood alone for most of their run, like uh, She-Hulk, and then been saddled with some necessary broader exposition, essentially, that kind of throws off their landing. And and I will say, uh, overall, I think Loki stuck the landing thematically, character-wise. The journey there wasn't always smooth, but at the end, I felt that, yes, if this is the end of Loki, I would still want more, but I don't need more, and I don't feel like they took me on this journey just to say, and he will return in Avengers, the Kang Dynasty. Agreed. Yeah, I um, I hope that... There is more in the sense that I think that this is good storytelling and I want more of it. And I don't think that everything is necessarily perfectly resolved. But um, I also hope that there's not more for Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, I hope that he gets to move on to different things in his career. I'd love to see him do weird little plays and some indies or something now that he's got his uh, nice Marvel checks. Yeah. Go take a vacation, Tom. You've earned it. Mm -hmm. And listener, if you have some hot takes on Marvel, Loki, or anything else you're watching or streaming, send it to us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We will be back in your feeds next week with more Streamageddon. Until then, I almost forgot to say it. Diane, what should we do? Keep Keep streaming. That just looks um, cheap.